Good morning. It's Friday, November 12th. I'm Shamita Basu. And I'm Duarte Geraldino. This is Apple News Today. Each morning, hear about some of the most fascinating stories in the news and how the world's best journalists are covering them. A disturbing pattern is emerging from the many threats made against local election workers. Reuters has been documenting and studying hundreds of intimidating messages sent to election officials in 12 states. What they found is, in a lot of cases, law enforcement is not taking these threats seriously. And many of the people doing the harassing live in different states than the people they're targeting. We spoke with reporter Linda So about what's motivating the people behind these threats. They all believed that the 2020 election was stolen. Um, Many of them believed that Trump um, won that election and that he should still be the president. Reuters managed to get in touch with nine people who admitted to making some of these threats. Eight of them spoke on the record. They identified themselves by name and told Reuters that it wasn't just former President Trump who directly inspired them, but also Trump allies people who cited false fraud claims to denounce election offices around the U.S. Also, many of them consumed far-right websites or uh, got their news from sources like OAN, BitChute, um, and they shared um, conspiracy theory videos with us um, that uh, expressed you know, concerns about the 2020 election and that there was fraud and that it was stolen. So said, when Reuters told these nine people their messages scared election workers, only two of them expressed regret. The rest were unapologetic. Some even said election workers deserved the menacing messages. One person Reuters spoke to, his name is Ross Miller. He's a real estate investor in Georgia. He targeted a Fulton County elections director. And basically told him that he better run, that he would be tarred and feathered and executed unless he did something about the voter fraud. However, the police department there, the Fulton County Police Department, declined to investigate uh, the matter because they said that the message didn't constitute a threat under Georgia law. That lack of action is part of a pattern. Reuters identified this wave of harassment in an earlier investigation over the summer. Based on that reporting... The Department of Justice launched a task force to investigate threats against election officials. But so far, there have been only a few arrests and no convictions. Members of local law enforcement told Reuters many of the threats simply couldn't be pursued. But legal experts told Reuters more than 100 of these threats could warrant prosecution. In June, Congressman John Surbanes of Maryland introduced legislation that would make it a federal crime to intimidate, threaten or harass election workers. The bill hasn't been voted on yet. In the meantime, some election workers told Reuters they're worried about the long-term impacts of these threats. They're concerned that um, this will lead to um, people deciding that they don't want to work in elections anymore. And so, um, you know, they're they're worried that they will lose um, a lot of valuable people to help run the election. It's hard to overstate how big a deal the $1.2 trillion infrastructure plan is for America's aging transportation systems. For Amtrak, it's going to be especially transformative. Some of this money will go towards the biggest expansion in Amtrak's history. The bill sets aside $66 billion in new funding for repairs, station improvements, trains, and the modernization of the Northeast Corridor, which is the nation's busiest route. 
It stretches from Boston to D.C. This plan could shorten travel time between D.C. and New York by 30 minutes, which is a lot for a trip that might usually take around three and a half hours. The Washington Post explains updates to the Northeast Corridor's crumbling infrastructure are long overdue. These funds are going to chip away at a backlog in repairs. While that's great news for the Northeast, the plan is ruffling some feathers in the West Coast. California's massive bullet train has been in the works for a long time now, but construction costs are soaring, so the project is stalled. The Los Angeles Times explains some of the reasons why the West lost out on federal funding. For one, states in the Northeast came together with a unified proposal from multiple state delegations. California's project, on the other hand, doesn't have bipartisan support. Plus, as the Times points out, maybe it doesn't hurt that the president is a big fan of Amtrak. California officials are hoping that Build Back Better, which is the Democrats' second spending package, will contribute more funds if it passes. But the LA Times says even if the money currently earmarked winds up in the eventual package, it's still not likely to be enough. It's really hard to find a public bathroom these days. Before the pandemic, restrooms and restaurants and bars, they filled this void. But when these types of places closed during the lockdown, it became clear just how few truly public toilets there really are in American cities. Which means public urination rates have spiked in some cities. There have been reports about desperate Uber and Amazon drivers relieving themselves in bottles and people who are homeless turning to adult diapers. Bloomberg News is out with a story that looks at the history of public bathrooms in this country and why there are so few of them. One of the earliest campaigns for more public bathrooms came about a century ago. Some progressive thinkers at the time were pointing out it's a public health issue. Funny enough, they found themselves joining forces with an unlikely group, people who were against alcohol consumption. The argument was, if there are more public bathrooms, men wouldn't find themselves walking into bars to use the facilities and be tempted to stay a while to have a beer. For a while, that argument worked. There was a surge in building public restrooms in the early 1900s. And these bathrooms were usually designed with high ceilings, shiny white tile everywhere to make them seem extra sparkly and clean. But within a decade or two, that movement lost steam. Those ornate public bathrooms turned out to be expensive to maintain. And the types of people who were once advocating for bathrooms had enough money to spend at theaters, hotels, and department stores. These were all places with nice public restrooms. And this set the foundation for how America thought about public restrooms. They became part of the consumer model. You go into a store or a restaurant, you buy something, you can use the facilities. Which, of course, creates this gap between people who can pay and those who can't. This Bloomberg story goes deep into the history of public bathrooms in America and the social and civil rights struggles over who's allowed to use them. It's really a fascinating read. You can check it out in the Apple News app or tap on the notification we send you midway through the show. Okay, so close to a million children between the ages of 5 and 11 got their first COVID shot. There have been a lot of news stories about parents who are feeling relieved and hopeful, but what stood out for us are the stories that highlight what this is like for the kids. Yeah, shout out to my old public radio station, WNYC. The Brian Lehrer Show had a live call-in segment just for kids. Now here's Kai in Brooklyn, who is nine years old. Mm-hmm. And at the end, it was little, like, a little tiny pinch, and, I, and then it was done. I felt really good that I did the right thing, and I'm really happy I got my first vaccination. 
That is because, really cool. Uh, because, have, go ahead. I, I have I have nationals. I have track meet. I have a track meet, and it's nationals. It's in Kentucky. Uh-huh. So if I get my vaccinations, I can fly there on a plane because I really like flying on planes. Lots of the kids who called in said they were scared of needles, but in the end, they were happy that they did it. Oh, and a lot of them said the thing that they're looking forward to the most is going to the movies. The New Yorker also spoke with kids at a vaccination site. Seven-year-old Anais Flores said the COVID-19 vaccine was like getting a long nail poked into your body. But she also called it great and fun. Sam Rohr, on the other hand, he's 10 years old and in the fifth grade told The New Yorker, when I got the vaccine shot, I felt absolutely nothing. This New Yorker story is a nice one to skim. It's got these great portraits of the kids and just a few quotes from each of them. You can find all these stories and more in the Apple News app. And check out our weekend interview show in conversation. This week, I speak with journalist Kat McGowan. She recently wrote for Popular Science about new research that suggests there is something in your blood that may be the key to undoing the effects of aging. What was so cool about this line of research is that it's not just about stopping the process of aging and the onset of all these serious chronic diseases. It's about reversing them. Enjoy that weekend listen. We'll be back with the news on Monday. 